I want to welcome everybody who's a part of this service right now, wherever you are joining us from, at one of our physical campuses, or if you're online on our YouTube channel, we're so glad that you're here today. My name's Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Forest Hill Church, and I am really glad you're here because we're starting today a brand new series called Cutting Through the Noise, How to Find Wisdom in the Middle of Chaos. And my guess is, you don't have to be the brightest person in the room to know that we really could use some wisdom right now. And you know why? Uh, corporately, we understand this. We're all trying to navigate um, like this, this cultural burrito, right? It's like a new economic shift wrapped up in an election cycle, all stuffed inside a global pandemic. Like that requires some wisdom. And then We've got the personal reasons that we need wisdom. Like uh, because of all that, you're probably entering or, or beginning this brand new phase of life. Like maybe it's because you're having to work a different job or you're looking for a job. You're trying to figure out how to be a homeschool teacher to your kids or, or maybe you've entered a new season like retirement because of all this stuff or, or you're just starting out in high school and things haven't exactly started the way that you expected. Then we've got holidays coming up. We're going to have to figure out how to navigate all that, whose house to go to for Thanksgiving, and how to avoid the argument at the Christmas dinner table. For all of those reasons, and a million other ones, we really could use some wisdom right now. Because right in the middle of all that, think about this, Netflix drops this documentary called The Social Dilemma, which basically tells us that the algorithm is uh, running our brains for us. So we could use something to help cut through all of that stuff and help us figure out how to get a grasp on what's wise. Uh, to do this, we're going to be looking at uh, this ancient part of wisdom literature, a book from the Bible called Proverbs. Now, Proverbs is this collection of, of really helpful sayings and ideas. It's like a, a proverb is a little picture of reality, like a little way of, of looking at life that even before you go and experience life, you can take it and examine it and understand, turn it at all the angles, and you can know something about how to act before you ever engage in reality. Proverbs is all about helping us learn and then live. Many of us, especially those starting out, we have to, you know, the saying, the proverb, live and learn. We have to make a whole bunch of mistakes. But the Bible, God through Proverbs, actually invites us to learn first and then find out the way to live. And this living is not just about making right decisions, or at least not only right decisions. See, what God is up to is allowing us the opportunity, inviting us in to make decisions that lead to a beautiful life, to the life that we've always intended. In the book of Proverbs, there's this idea, uh, this personification of wisdom. And wisdom in the book is seen as a woman. She's standing in the middle of a crowded town square or city court, and she's yelling out, listen to me. Follow me. I can take you to the life that you've always wanted, the beautiful life that God intended. And yet, there's this other voice. And, and, and you hear it. I hear it. It's what's called the voice of folly or foolishness. It's the voice that yells out, don't do that. Look over here. You have to own this. Buy that. Hate them. They're not your people. It's the one that seems to scream louder. 
And so the book of Proverbs is written to help us know which voice to pay attention to. The book of Proverbs primarily is written by a guy named Solomon. You may have heard of him. He's considered all across cultures as the wisest person who ever lived, at least until Jesus enters human history. Solomon was a man who was a, a king of Israel. He actually was King David, one of the most famous kings ever, his son, the son of an illegitimate affair between David and Bathsheba, one of the most tragic circumstances, a betrayal that led to an affair and adultery and then to murder. But Solomon is the product of that, and he becomes king, and not just king, he becomes the most wealthy and wise king that the people had ever seen. Just a little reminder right here at the beginning of the message that no matter the tragic circumstances surrounding your birth, God can still do something incredible through your life. So before we begin to look at what Solomon actually said, and he collected sayings and even the wisdom of his own time and his own mind and wrote it down for his children and for you and me to follow, before we jump into that, I want to tell you a little bit about how Solomon got to this place of being the wisest one who ever lived. We're told that when Solomon was a very young man, maybe 15 to 18 years old, that he was about to become king. And he goes to the throne recognizing he doesn't have any experience. He doesn't have what's necessary to do this huge job. I mean, maybe you can relate. You've been in that place before where you got asked to do something that you weren't equipped or qualified for. Well, in a dream, God comes to Solomon and he says, I'll give you anything that you ask for. Let me ask you, how would you respond to that question? If God tonight came and said, hey, look, I'll give you anything you want, what would be the first request on your mind? What would you say? Let me show you in 1 Kings 3 what Solomon says. Starting in verse 7, he says, Lord my God, you've now made your servant king in my father David's place, yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. So give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Solomon recognized that he didn't have time to live and learn, that he needed wisdom and he needed it now. So that's what he asked God for. And then in verse 10, it says, now it pleased the Lord that Solomon had requested this. So God said to him, because you've requested this and did not ask for long life or riches for yourself or the death of your enemies, but you asked discernment for yourself to administer justice, I will therefore do what you've asked. I will give you a wise and understanding heart so that there's never been anyone like you before and never will be again. In addition, I'll give you what you did not ask for, both riches and honor, so that no king will be your equal during your entire life. And if, listen, if you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and commands just as your father David did, I will give you a long life. I wonder, would you have asked for wisdom right out of the gate? You know, I'm not sure that would have been the first thing that I would have come up with. There's so many competing things, so much noise, so many, so many ideas and so many things calling saying you have to have this. And yet Solomon chose rightly. 
What we see that happens next is a quick example of just how wise he was and how it played out for his people. We find out right after this, in, still in 1 Kings chapter 3, that, that uh, the two women came and approached Solomon one day. Uh, they were prostitutes who lived in the same house, and they had both had babies at about the same time. I, I know, it's a crazy story. I really tell you all the time, you should read your Bible. So the two women come and, and they, bring their ba- they bring a baby into the room and, and one says, this is what happened last night. Uh, in the middle of the night, the other mother woke up to her child dead. And, and this is mine, but she's claiming that it's hers. And, and what we understand is that somehow in the middle of the night, the mom who woke up and found a dead child decided to switch it with the other mom. And they came before the king to judge and they asked, what should we do? The baby is mine. Both had a claim. Solomon, he does something that is uncommon. It's, it's a way of acting as the judge here that, that could only be wisdom from outside of himself. Here's what he says. Solomon says, I want you to grab a sword. Perfect plan. Ladies, since neither of you can prove it, here's what we're going to do. Bring a sword to me. And we're going to cut the baby in half, and we're going to give each of you half the child. Now look, that sounded just as gruesome and offensive to everybody in the room as it does to to you and me right here today. And and what we're told is that next, one woman says, that's right, if I can't have him, no one's going to have him. And the other woman says, please, please, just give the baby to her. Solomon looks at their faces, and he understands in that moment what wisdom would say. He says, give the child to the one, the real parent, who was willing to sacrifice him, to give him up for the sake of his life. And then we read this in verse 28. All of Israel heard about the judgment the king had given, and they stood in awe of the king. Keep that word in mind. Because they saw that God's wisdom was in him to carry out justice. This is Solomon, the wisest person to live until Jesus steps on the scene. And because Solomon understood that wisdom needed to be handed down from one generation to the next, uh, he writes these words for me and for you that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. And it doesn't matter how old you are or how much wisdom you think you've achieved already, there is something in this for you. We're going to look at all kinds of aspects of life and how to find the voice of wisdom that says this is the way. So I'd like to ask you, wherever you are, if you're able, would you stand? And we're going to read Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Here's what God's Word says. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. For learning wisdom and discipline, for understanding insightful sayings, for receiving prudent instruction in righteousness, justice, and integrity, for teaching shrewdness to the inexperienced, knowledge and discretion to a young man. Let a wise person listen and increase learning, and let a discerning person obtain guidance for understanding a proverb or a parable, the words of the wise and their riddles. And then right here, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. This is God's word. You can be seated. Verse 7 is the core message, the central theme of this entire book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. If that's the case, we need to understand what the fear of the Lord is, how do we get it, 
and how not to be a fool. Anybody else want to learn that lesson with me? So let's take a look today at this very first idea of what is the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord goes like this. Um, in Hebrew, the word that's used for fear there is a word called yirah. Yirah. Y-I-R-A-H. Yirah has this idea of fear. It could be the, the kind of panic or terror that you experience when you come across something that's really frightening that could overwhelm and kill you. But it also often has to do with something like reverence or um, astonishment it's amazement, even maybe worship. It's that feeling you get when you find yourself standing on sacred ground. Your raw could best be described maybe and summed up with the idea of, of awe, being in awe of God. This, uh, the way that you would describe it is, uh, or maybe you could imagine it, is one of those moments where you found yourself speechless in awe of something, like in creation maybe. Uh, maybe it's looking at a gorgeous sunset and, and all you can do is stare. Maybe it's if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon. I, I haven't, but I know people who haven't said that they stand there and they just can't believe the vastness of that ex expanse. Uh, for me, I was just talking today with uh, some of our partners in Cairo, Egypt. We're in the process of working with KDEC, Kasserel Dabara Church in Cairo, to plant a church in a, in a place in Africa and Tunisia. Can't wait for you to hear more about that. It's really exciting work. And back earlier this year, I was there working with them on that partnership, and I got a chance to see the pyramids. Wow. I was in awe of the pyramids, the sheer size, their age, I mean, all the things that they've withstood over time, empires have come and gone, and yet how they were even possibly built at that time, it, it made me be in awe. Maybe for you, it's something like uh, the first time that you looked at that most beautiful person in the world to you, the time when you knew you were falling in love. Maybe it's the first moment that you opened up that box that had the iPhone in it, do you remember how perfectly the box lifted and how smooth and sleek and just beautiful it was? Maybe it was like my kids and I this summer. We went out for a night walk at the beach and there was a thunderstorm happening offshore. And every once in a while we could see through peals of lightning, uh, light up, we could see the sand around us and we could see the waves crashing. We felt the experience that we were very, very small. Whatever it is that comes to mind for you, maybe in creation, uh, that sense of awe is, is what the writer's getting at. But specifically, it's the kind of awe like, like when you get goosebumps because you've prayed a prayer specifically and God answers in that specific way. It's that feeling when maybe you've been gathered with a group of other believers and you're praying for someone to be healed or for God to move in a way and you, you lay your hands on that person and you can sense that something has shifted in the atmosphere as his power, as his spirit is made present. It's, it's the kind of awe that causes us to want to move in. See, that's the difference. Fear, terror, often makes us want to run away. It makes us want to take a step back. But, but awe makes us want to move towards. And that's exactly what God is after when he says, the awe of God is the beginning of wisdom. He wants us to move close, to find relationship with him. That fear or that awe, the yurah of God, 
it produces a couple of things. First, in us, it produces a sense of humility. It should produce a sense of surrender and submission. When we come into contact with something as powerful as the creator of all the universe, who has lived and and existed before time and will forever, who has designed every intricate part of everything that we see, who calls out to us by nature itself, I am God and there is no other. When you experience that, it should make us humbly say, whatever you want, God. But it also produces some other things. And Proverbs tells us a little bit about that. Let me read to you a couple of these other things. And I'm going to substitute for fear of the Lord the awe of God, just so it may wake us up a bit to this. In Proverbs 9.10, it says, The awe of God is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 19.23, The awe of God leads to life. One will sleep at night without danger. Proverbs 10.27 The awe of God prolongs life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. And then Proverbs 22.4, humility, the awe of God, results in wealth, honor, and life. What the writer is trying to get across, what Solomon understood, and what we have to grasp, is that our primary crisis, in this moment, or in any moment that you and I will face, when we need wisdom, our primary crisis It's not informational. Our primary crisis is relational. See, we have access to all the information we could ever need. In fact, if you were to die today and not learn another fact the rest of your life, you would know more than the majority of people who've ever lived on the planet. Access to data and facts. We have Google. We don't need more of that. What we need are guides. What we need is someone that can help us make sense of all of that information, of how to navigate life. And that's how wisdom is described in the scriptures. It's more than just that right or wrong decision-making. It's actually used to describe things like a master craftsman, a skilled artist, or even a sailor, a sailor who can look at the wind and navigate the currents of life. That's what we need, is someone to help us navigate through life's winds and storms and currents and end up in the beautiful destination. My friend Robbie Fisher and I were talking this past week on Monday about this message and, and he made this comment that I, was just so good. He said, you know, one example, one definition of repentance is to say, you're right, God. <laughs> That's so simple and so profound and so true. That when we get into a relationship with God that's correct, when we experience the awe of God, what should come out of our mouth first, the act of repentance, of changing our mind and changing our direction, is you're right, God. You're right. To, To lay open everything about us, to lay down everything that we have, and to choose to want to move toward him in awe. To desire to know him more, to say, you're right, you're God and I'm not. What would you have me do? That is the beginning of wisdom. That's the second part to that statement. The fear of the Lord, Yurah, awe of God, is the beginning of wisdom. Now, he doesn't mean that it's the beginning of wisdom like uh, this is the first step and then you move on to something else. This is way more like the beginning of wisdom, meaning this is the elemental principle. It's the foundational belief. It is what everything else is built on, and wisdom is 
the awe of God. It, it would be like um, 2 plus 2 equals 4 is to calculus what the awe of God is to wisdom. In my house right now, and maybe it's true in yours too, uh, we've got kids that are in all different ages, and so we're doing both arithmetic, like 2 plus 2, and also functions. I'm Actually, I'm not doing the functions. I'm pretending like I could help with the functions because it's way past my pay grade, but, but we're still using the exact same principles. Or maybe it's like uh, the color wheel. Red, yellow, and blue make up everything from my kid's finger painting to Picasso. You never move past the foundational principle. And that got me thinking, what are some of the foundational principles that, that we base our life on other than the awe of God? Maybe for you, there's one you could think of right now. Like, how, what kind of rule or operation guides your life? For some of us, it's things like uh, sayings, like actually little proverbs we've learned along the way. For instance, um, some people believe in or base their life on the foundational principle of, if it is to be, it's up to me. Some of you could finish my sentence. If it is to be, it's up to me. That everything in life depends on you. Let me ask, if that's yours, how's that working for your relationships? How's that working for your stress level? And I know, I know, we really want to believe that because it makes us feel like we're in control. It allows us to not have to be faced with the fear, the awe of God. Uh, how about this one? The one who dies with the most toys wins. Now, I know nobody would say that out loud, actually. We would never actually admit to that. But many of our lives are lived, and you can see the fruit of it, based on the principle that accumulation of stuff is the most important thing we can do. How does that work in the relationships where you should be experiencing love? How's that affecting your health? See, we have this one principle right now in culture that permeates everything, it seems. It's the idea that truth is in me. That somewhere deep down in who I am, that if I just dig deep enough and hard enough or long enough, that, that the source of beauty and truth and reality, it's all in me. In fact, it's my truth. And if I can just find it and live my life in a way that's authentic to my truth, everything's going to be okay. That's a foundational principle. And, and here's the thing. The Bible goes nose to nose against that. Jesus says that truth is not deep in you at least not to start. Truth is out there. In fact, the out there is it's God. It's Jesus himself, wisdom personified. But that he wants to guide us into that truth. He wants, in fact, to put that truth inside us in a relationship with him because this is not about information. It's about relation. When you're in awe of God, when I'm in awe of God, and we encounter him this way, we say, God, you're right. I'll base my life on that, uh, that aspect. And, and here's the way it kind of works out. When you're able to have the foundational principle like that, you can then make decisions pretty easily. You experienced this maybe the first time you fell in love. Do you remember when, when that would be and you, you found that person and you were in awe at first because they were just so beautiful or so handsome? And then everything about your life got based on them. They were of priority, first importance. So where you ate or what you did, it was easy to make choices about how you spent your money or your time or which friends you kept. In fact, even what you allowed to stay in your closet 
based on the foundational principle of that other person being first. We all have operating rules like this that we live life out of. Proverbs says that wisdom comes from making the awe of God primary. Um, when you are in awe of God, it does something to the decisions that you make. In fact, it often pushes us. Let me give you an example. When you are in a relationship with God where you say you're right, and he says, like he does in scripture, love your enemies. Love those that you disagree with. In fact, love is more important than being right. When he says that, I can either say, you're right, God, and man, a time in which we live where there's so much division, so many things, those of us who are Jesus followers, we're supposed to say, you're right, God, in that moment, and find ways to love, to will and work for the good of someone else, especially the ones we disagree with. But here's the problem. For many of us, we want wisdom to be not based on the foundation of God, you're right, but God, will you help me do what I want? See, when I'm not actually loving God, when I'm just using him to prop up my position, then I say things like, yeah, but if I don't do this, if this doesn't happen, we're doomed. If this doesn't take place, uh, our country will fall apart. If I don't get that job, it's over. If he doesn't love me, I'm finished. So God, I'll do it my way, and maybe would you help? That's not the awe of God as the foundational principle. That's making us the center and hoping that God will supply some of his power to accomplish our agenda. It's kind of like this. The, the proverb there in verse 7 says, the fool despises wisdom. This idea of saying, God, you're right, they reject it. And it's, it's not because they don't have enough intelligence. A, a fool doesn't do this because uh, it rejects it because he can't. It's because he won't. It's because deep down at the, the level of our will, we say, I won't surrender, bow, submit. I won't live in humility. It's like the person, and maybe you've known a person like this, who, who has some physical health issues, right? And they know that the doctor has already told them or, or is going to tell them, look, you can't continue to live this way. Uh, your, your stress level's too high, your cholesterol's too high, all this going on. So we can get you the healthy life that you want. I've got wisdom for you. Here it is. You have to change your schedule, you've got to change your diet, and uh, you've got to change your activity level. And we all know the person who hears that and says, I'm never going back to that doctor again. They cancel appointments, they do anything to avoid it. It's not that they can't do or receive the wisdom, it's they don't want to. This is what a fool does with God's instruction, with God's wisdom. So, as I close, I guess the real question is this. Do you want to be wise? Do you want to follow the voice that says, I can take you to the life that God intended for you? Or do you want to be in control? That's really the question before us all. Do you want to be wise or do you want to be in charge? Do you have the kind of relationship with God that's based on awe or on terror? Hmm. I am uh, 
real, well, let me just say it like this. I hate snakes. Yeah, I know. God hasn't dealt with me on that. He's not gotten me to that place yet. But I really do. I hate them. I, there's no good snake except a dead one in someone else's yard. Um, but if I'm really honest with myself, I'm afraid of snakes. There's a fear that pushes me towards disgust and towards my anger. So when I come upon that, all I want to do is remove it from my presence. In the same way, many of us treat God that way. We're angry at God. But, but the anger is a level, it's a veneer over our fear. Because right now we're not connected in a relationship with him of all, and we know that we can't live up to the standard. See, that's where this relationship goes from just wisdom and, and pithy little sayings to actually something that's livable. It happens when we're able to re-engage and to be restored to a proper relationship with God, and that only happens through wisdom himself, Jesus. See, the other side of this is, though, when you're, maybe you're not in awe, but you're not angry. You're just bored, disinterested. That's a dangerous place to be, too. When we say, yeah, yeah, whatever. But I don't want to now. That's the way of the fool, Proverbs would say. And interestingly, the antidote, the medicine for both of those, anger out of fear or distrust and disinterest, the medicine for both is the same. I think it's to look at the cross. There are lots of things in life that can produce awe. And all of the creation things that we talked about or technology things or relational moments, all those can produce awe. Nothing produces awe like the cross. Don't just stop listening now because you think you know the story. I want you for a moment just to imagine hanging on that cross the wisest person who ever lived wisdom himself, Jesus and he's there saying, in, in, in defiance of your rejection, despite the fact that you don't care, even though you're still a rebel, I love you. I forgive you. Look into that face. Look into that face that is bruised and battered, that's been tortured and beaten, and see grace. God's desire for you pouring out. God's desire to move close. Look at the cross and realize that even if you think you're smarter or higher or better than him, he still was willing to stoop low and humble himself to die for you and for me. Folks, don't look away. Look right at it and you realize slowly that your pride begins to melt into humility. Your desire to be in charge begins to melt away into submission. Your belief that you have to do it yourself results in surrender to the God who's done everything for you and now offers you eternal life through his cross. Stare at that and you watch awe begin to take over your heart and mind. So let me ask you today, would you choose to start that kind of a relationship with him? Here's Here's the story. Jesus chose to come to give his life in the humble surrender of a servant, to pay the penalty for our sin, to die the death that we deserved, and then is resurrected in glory. And he says, if you will place your faith in me, 
if you will allow the awe of that to overwhelm you, I will be your Savior and I will be your Lord and I will take you to the beautiful life that you've always wanted. Is that you today? Are you ready? Are you done with trying to figure out how to navigate all this stuff on your own? It begins with a relationship of awe in your Savior. And I'd like to pray for us that way right now. So would you bow your head and and close your eyes? Father, we come before you now open and willing to hear whatever you have to say. And we begin by saying you're right. You're right about what separates us. You're right about what we need. You're right about forever and eternal life with you. You're right. So God, I pray that you would help us to surrender to that. It is a beautiful surrender to grace, to grace that goes first and love that chooses us. Would you allow each person here today to maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time to say, God, I'm willing to stand in awe of you. I don't want to be afraid of you any longer. Jesus, would you now work in hearts and give us the ability to keep that in front of us, the most beautiful picture of all and all of creation history. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.